Hi, Cody here. I'm sitting on an episode of The Transect that contains one of my all-time favorite conversations with uh, Bill Angelbeck. However, sometimes when you record a pod in your house, you forget to lean into the mic, or that it's raining loudly outside, or that you left the fridge plugged in. Or maybe you left the fridge plugged in on purpose to keep your guests' beer cold. Either way, sometimes your audio is a little rough, and it breaks your heart. I'd still recommend listening, though, because Bill is amazing, and the conversation is is fantastic. Just, maybe for this one, wait until you're somewhere quiet. A park bench rather than a bus. Or maybe your house, while you're doing dishes. But please listen, and enjoy. Bill Angelbeck's episode of The Transect. Welcome to The Transect, a podcast about archaeology and British Columbia. I'm your co-host, Cody. I'm Sean Picanon. And I'm Ian. And uh, today we have a special guest, uh, Bill Angelbeck. Uh, Sean, do you care to introduce? Bill? Yeah, I'd be glad to, yeah. Bill Angelbeck is uh, in the Faculty of Anthropology at Douglas College. His work is quite illuminating, tackling subjects such as anarchistic practices in Northwest culture and societies, ritual, indigenous rights, and action archaeology. He's uh, published numerous peer-reviewed papers, and you're working on a book right now, aren't you, Bill? Uh, yeah. 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 So, right. yeah. He's a, brilliant <laughs> He's a brilliant mind, and we're welcome to have him to the studio. Welcome, Bill. All right. Thanks. Yeah. Good to be here. <laughs> um, yeah, this is a this is a pretty huge pull for us. I think. Uh, are you our f- no? Uh, Jay's published, I guess. Yeah, but not on the level, Bill. We got a we got a we got we got a level to, to Yeah, I'm a, I'm I'm a little bit nervous. Uh, I'm, I'm sweating profusely over here. Uh, but yeah, let's uh, let's let's jump in. One of the things we we do at the start is we usually uh, talk a little bit about you know what what magnet you know sucked us into archaeology. Uh, uh, yeah, what for you? What's what, how did you end up here? Yeah, yeah, good question. Um, it just it was actually uh, the the intellectual draw, I, w- I would say, of the field itself. So it started off. Uh, I was taking just all kinds of courses when I was at university. It was in the broadest major you could be. It was kind of like a called an antiquities major, <laughs> and you could uh, um, just take classes in ancient cultures and uh, religion and, uh, you know, ancient religion of Egypt or Babylon and shamanism and things like that. It just was pretty open-ended, but uh, when I, and I was also highly interested in philosophy, and I was almost a, a philosophy minor, just didn't want to take ethics. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, was it that even as, which is ironic, because I'm, you know, totally we're in, yeah. immersed yeah, in yeah, ethics exactly. now. At the time, I was like, this but uh, so I, yeah but anyway at that time I was, I was very interested in philosophy and then I then I took a, an archaeology course and it ended up uh, yeah, by uh, uh, it turned out he, yeah, David Ben he was a turned out he was I realized after it was one of the more complex courses I'd had so I was interested in anthropology I was taking a lot I'd taken a lot of history and then here I'm taking this archaeology and it was actually the most in the way he presented it it was like this is pretty hardcore ways to think about it. It's not just anthropology, meaning you study cultures and get them to know what they're about. You're actually studying a culture and how they change through time. And that's that's even adding whole dimensions of, 
of ways to think about culture that was that were really complex. And plus, he was he was actually a Marxist archaeologist. Yeah. Oh, nice. nice. And <laughs> I realized what he was doing was yeah. <laughs> teaching and lecturing from Eric Wolf's mm. Europe and the Peoples of the yeah. History. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm just kind of really, you know, wow, this is a radically uh, informative way and a way of understanding developments in the world. And uh, and here here he was doing it through archaeology. And one of his cases, one of his great powerful examples was the Northwest Coast. Yeah. And so he used a case where establishing a fish weir lower down on a river, and yeah. say it stops a lot of the salmon, and it prevents access to further groups further up that same tributary, mm-hmm. uh, and the dynamics of power relationships that that, that leads to. Hmm. And, uh, and, uh, uh, which which has set me off. I'm actually returning to that notion for an yeah. uh, upcoming paper, I think. But, That's uh, super cool. Yeah, yeah. it is. And yeah. it was like we were thinking about these kinds of power relations. And then you went through another one, and it was Northwest Coast. What if these people have lots of fish, and they something yeah. happens, landslide occurs, they get no fish, yeah. and they have to borrow fish from them? What's yeah. that do about yeah. the relationships between the chiefs of this village to these people? And it was like this full-on power dynamics done through... and. Uh, so it was, it was actually, I found it to be the hardest, most difficult course that I was taking because of the way he, he approached it uh, in his way, you know, Marxism through very much material and uh, the history. And so that got me in, and then I went to his excavation, and uh, was that? it was astonishing. It was in uh, Arkansas, so we okay. were at the, this site in northeast Arkansas. We were excavating all weekend. It was a uh, Mississippian-era mm-hmm. village. And I remember excavating it, and supposedly in a house. I yeah. taking my square test unit. And op- yeah. op- uh, we'd open it up and things. And uh, and uh, finally, at the end of the day, all of us gather up on top of one of the back dirt piles and uh, and look down. And, and he just walks through and uh, and just starts pointing out the houses and the fire pits and the posts, yeah. stuff I've yeah. been standing over for three days yeah. and had not seen the patterns, and yet he could. And, and, you, and once he pointed them out, you could not see them mm-hmm. yeah. anymore. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, you know, it was just like, wow, this is really, really fascinating. And then his own studies were also about power. And he was talking about how these were particularly, uh, this was a period of uh, where burial mounds were associated with the village. Mm-hmm. And then following uh, the next site over, slight, uh, just another hundred years later, uh, no... Uh, burial mounds associated with the village. Instead, they were regional centers in which all the burials mm. were traveled oh, wow. to. And so they were centralizing power yeah. through the control of mortuary remains. Uh, and so he and he'd done that through you know, a very Marxist approach you know, in terms of power relations amongst people and documented it really well and you know, just happened to be in the field. So yeah, he got me into this, right? Yeah. So, was that in Southwest Missouri? Is that where you were? Yeah, was it yeah. Southwest Missouri? Or now it's called Missouri State. Missouri State, yeah. Yeah. Another thing I would say is that being in the field, yeah, uh, for me, uh, this relates to, in a sense, my current uh, theoretical viewpoint, which yeah. is that archaeology is also blue collar and white collar mm-hmm. yeah. at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Which is I've always liked that aspect. <laughs> that and yeah, uh, and this is something that like uh, people like Kropotkin advocate for a and even Marx uh, for ideal societies is, is that people engage in physical labor. Then they also are engaging in mentally in uh, philosophical, intellectual topics, and that makes for a more whole-rounded 
well-rounded person. That's yeah. We actually we, we, we talked about, about this, this. Uh, briefly <laughs> before about like what brings us to archaeology, and we uh, I think we all came to the consensus that we find that like extremely appealing. The kind of the marriage of the physical aspect of it with the the mental aspect of it. Digging a hole in the morning and then thinking about it in the afternoon is like the ideal, and it was just like on a personal level very fulfilling. That you're mm-hmm. not you're not stuck doing one type of activity. You actually are able to express both physical and, and mental things. Yeah, and I think if you if you compare that with the idea of you're living in sort of descended communities and you're doing that as well, it's another sort of angle to that, where you're coming in with this sort of kind of knowledge, but the community's coming back at you with another set of knowledge and, and skills and talent. And it's kind of interesting to sort of like have that get messy in the field and talk about that stuff that I find really engaging. And and I like just mixing in with different people that. You know, you can get isolated in academia, can't you? Mm-hmm. And, and you don't get to sort yeah, of have sure. a real sense of a like a reality in some sense, right? Yeah, that's good. You could say it's kind of a yeah. We talk white collar, blue collar, but what, what would you call that? It's like a some kind of like balance between your, the isolation of your work and societal relevance. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And you get that kind of dynamic happening as well. So, so you had these these pivotal case studies and the, these figures like this first professor. We've heard, we've heard about this in some of the origin stories we've been talking about with different. Guests on the podcast, like the inspiring professor that got you into it, and all these case studies that you seem to return to. Mm-hmm. So you said you're you're actually going to return back to some of these first things you became interested with. Hey, I don't know if I've yet be prepared to talk about. Only only in that the uh, I was thinking about that exact story, yeah. and uh, I've come across oral traditions now where the breaking of weirs is uh, an important feature in their history. Mm-hmm. And that brought me all the way back to those power dynamics before, and so and we're talking about inter intergroup uh, battles, mm-hmm. and so if these play a part, in, uh, you know, this is stuff yeah. in bars at conferences and stuff that you know we're, we're talking, yeah, at, and and it's like, whoa, wait, there's a story like that. I've been, mm-hmm. I've been in this area too, and then and I started to like, well, hey, what, you know, let's now start to compile all these stories about battles over fish weirs and. Breaking of them, mm-hmm. and in fact, uh, yeah, I work with Little Watt there. That's a huge uh, mm-hmm. story. Their their origin story itself it relates to the the brothers, the Canoe Brothers, uh, the Copper Canoe Brothers, uh, transforming the landscape as they travel down the Harrison River mm-hmm. and the Lewitt River all the way down here, and to and they break a weir to 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 reach the ocean, and then that's what allows the breaking of the weirs yeah. what leads to the salmon coming up, mm-hmm. and. Uh, and in the as if it was some kind of natural thing, yeah, yeah. Um, or some kind of blockage uh, created by early transformer figures that uh, these two transformers in themselves uh, rectified, made the world bright. And so, and there's others. There's a, there's a series of them, and I think we can start to look at them both in a what's it say in a early transformation time plus more legendary mm-hmm. recent battles, and uh, yeah, bring it into this. These stories, yeah, I think it's rich to, to look at these stories and look at the power dynamics. Yes. This is kind of what uh, uh, Eric McClay and I did with uh, the oral histories of, uh, of the battle at Maple Bay. Yeah, okay. and so if you look, yeah, if you compile a whole bunch together, they start to tell you more about the cultures than just the story itself, and they tell you about how things are done uh, in terms of protocols of, of peoples. You can learn about that. Um, you can learn about uh, yeah, just yeah, the dynamics between people, uh, forms of social organization, uh, 
forms of identity, how people conceptualize themselves relative to others. These stories are actually really deep and rich in symbolism. Mm-hmm. And it's true for a lot of their other stories. I don't know if you've looked at uh, uh, Richard Atlio's Salak. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. I've been That's an example that. of how, yeah. it's fantastic. how you take these simplistic stories oh. about Raven stealing the light, and it seems like simplistic on the surface, Yeah, but then he spends some time with it. And there's a structure there that you when, you, when you hear repeatedly or you hear different stories approaching mm-hmm. the same topics, that you start to, to get what, what the broader structure is to be applied from this narrative outward. Yeah. yeah. And, I, this, and he just, it's, it's astonishing. I love it. Yeah, 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 I love it. I love it. I read it and I'm kind of blown away because I know the story. Yeah. And I've never encountered it like that, right? And yeah. it's just like, whoa, he's really uh, pulling this stuff out. And when he pulls it out, it's there. I mean, you, you see it. You understand mm-hmm. it. And it's meant to be there. Yeah, I I've worked with people uh, on the northwest coast who uh, like you you want to ask them about a, a specific story or a specific part of their their uh, cultural mythology or, or tradition, and uh, a, a response I often get is like, well, I'll like I can tell you like a, the ten minute version that's basically worthless because it's meant to be told over three days, mm-hmm. and it's like <laughs> okay, <laughs> but yeah, you get that that like hyper simplistic like almost like anglicized where it's like here's how we have to tell it so that we can tell it in like a conversational like you know medium with a coworker rather than the way it's meant to be told which is to be you know told over like a series of days with like dance involved and, and the whole thing mm-hmm. we're dancers out and fishing we're out doing these tasks and doing these things together we're all just sort of these they, 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 be, they can be sort of like categorized as sort of like a subsistence base or some kind of economic thing but they're really it's all where all the social and cultural residue is right mm-hmm. all that, yeah the meat and teaching and everything that's coming out and really get to form a perspective of the world and, and that identity and then sort of create that sort of class will be an alternative reality. So Bill, you're obviously drawing the power, these so, social practices, these social yeah. processes that are happening, obviously you're early influence in, in Missouri. Um, is that what led you to sort of like deal with your PhD and look at anarchy as, as sort of a theory to sort of grapple with some of this stuff? Um, and could you maybe just briefly just explain some of the theories and principles behind sort of anarchistic thought? Well, sure. Uh... Is that too? Th- those are two different questions. Yeah, sorry. I'd like to address uh, both. Uh, Thank you. Uh, which do you want first? The, uh, the first one. Oh, the first part. Okay, sure. Um, what, whatever's easier for you. What's easier for you? Well, I, 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 the importance of social archaeology. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay. To start yeah. with. Is that, uh, and you can, I'll follow that up with yeah. anarchism is my avenue into social archaeology. Yeah. But social archaeology is really important. And I think of it's critically important as a. Uh, at, in terms of archaeology itself, that archaeology's aim and uh, intention actually needs to, to, to reach social archaeology. Mm-hmm. And if it's not, then we're, we're, we're doing lesser interpretations uh, that only uh, give us knowledge. Uh, you can think of Hawk's Ladder of Difficulty, right? right? Where yeah. we're thinking about that. Yeah, gets that religious level, right? Yeah, the upper, big, yeah, yeah the, the, the first steps of the of the ladder are the uh, techniques and mm-hmm. economy. They, that those are easy to interpret from the remains, and then you get up, you know, higher up the ladder, mm-hmm. you get into social organization and ideology, and that's the I'm including all of that as social mm-hmm. the upper part. That's where I'm interested. Uh, Binford, of course, squashed you know, the, <laughs> yeah. this idea that you know we're always doing all all of it, and uh, yeah. Hox is wrong. <laughs> but at the same time, every, most archaeology is down at the lower rungs. 
and uh, it's dealing with economy uh -huh. uh, largely, or even more so, ecology, uh -huh. and uh, increasingly ecological. And you can just look at the language of the archaeological reports or the archaeological thinker that you're looking at, and you just look at their language. Are they talking about chemistry? They're dealing with chemistry. They're, they're, if they're talking about uh, micromorphology, they're, talk, they're, they're, they're speaking as a geomorphologist. Are they talking about fauna, and they're speaking about it as a biologist? Mm -hmm. You know, that's these are all fine. We we need to do all of these directions. Mm -hmm. But if it retains in that language and ways of thinking, you're not rising above it as biology, as geology, or as you know, or just a, you know. Uh, hopefully, it's economy. Uh, you know, uh, and it's, it's important to, to then focus on the social for me. Uh, and so that's why I wanted to do it because this is these the past of peoples. Mm -hmm. I think of it in terms of uh, indigenous peoples, mm -hmm. hearing what archaeological reports produce. And the saddest thing to read is this is a resource processing station <laughs> occupied for, for thousands of years. Uh, yeah. You know, it's just it's, it's people are reduce, <laughs> reduce their past. To resource process, yeah. you know, sometimes not even identifying what that resource is. It's, it's six thousand years right there of like yeah. human interaction. Oh, they're procuring resources. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Great. They're, they're eating. Thanks, bud. I want that on my. <laughs> I want that to be my obituary. Yeah, yeah. procuring resources. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, can, that can go on your your headstone. <laughs> Ian Sellers, procure, procurer of resources. Not, yeah. not even very well. What yeah. did he like? <laughs> Doritos mostly. Yeah. These were the resources. Yeah, yeah. It's just yeah. It, it's like such a generic, bland statement that it doesn't really get us anywhere. It's like, what, what was the, what was the interpretation for? Like, why were you collecting data if that's what it comes out with? And that's you, right. And yeah. you get one shot, and, and and then you know, let's make the most of it there. Then you're, you're gonna just store all that basic data, but you're not even gonna look at it in sort of interesting way. You try to connect it to anything. Mm -hmm. I, so how do you get there? Yeah. 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 Um, well, yeah. So. Yeah, here's that point again. People are talking the language of ecology, or talking the language of chemistry, or geology, and, or fauna, and stuff. This is an advancement of processualism. I don't want to minimize that. Yeah. But what it also did is take out our thinking and our language and put our minds about... And so we end up talking about populations as if they're beaver populations with a carrying capacity yeah. in a particular region. And we're not talking about it as history. And for me, socio, you know, if you think about indigenous peoples hearing about resource processing stations or something like that. That's, that's not dignified yeah, as a way of talking about their ancestors, in a sense, or, or like speaking about how they think about the past and what it means to encounter these artifacts. And so to, to get at social aspects, to get at what it means to, to live in the past, what, what we do in history and how we think about uh, the times of the, the Roaring Twenties or the, uh, the Depression and how tough that was, mm -hmm. uh, we get this kind of a sense of the feelings of the era, or what times, or what kind of power relations they may have been dealt with. Mm -hmm. These are the kind of things that would be, that we should try to, try to assess however we can. And so, that's, I guess, what we'd say. So I think socio-archaeological yeah. is, is important, and that should be where archaeology always should be at, or aim for, mm -hmm. to try to, to do. And the, lens, and the lens you use, at least in some of your work, um, is, is anarchy. That's right. Anarchy. Yeah. And so anarchism is about power relations. And yeah. It's a, uh, that you could, if you boil it down, it's about assessing power relations mm -hmm. and a critique of power relations. Uh, so anarchism uh, uh, means anarche, uh, without rulership. Mm -hmm. You could also just kind of 
to say that means without domination, without uh, uh, coercive or authoritarian structures. And so it becomes, even in that kind of definition, uh, even in the origin of the word itself, is a, is a critique mm-hmm. uh, of power. And so ways to think about power relations. And so power relations, that's really how people live their lives. I like to think about uh, Bertrand Russell's characterization of uh, the natural sciences as opposed to the social sciences. Mm-hmm. And he says in the natural sciences, we're talking about energy. We're talking about stars forming. We're talking about rocks hitting rocks in geology. Yeah. We're talking about cells and biology. And that, that, all of that is cause-effect relationships, billiard balls impinging upon one another. And it's the movement of energy. But when you get into power, or when you get into social sciences, you're dealing with power, and it's not energy anymore. And you're talking about the dynamics between people. It's power relationships. So that's what forms history. That forms the context of how people are living their lives. Uh, and anarchism is the, the theory, the philosophy about power. So, and this is something that Marx doesn't really deal with. Yeah. He deals with the economic development and uh, concentrations of power. I was going to say there's a richness yeah. there. Oh, certainly. That that goes beyond the economic perspective. Mm-hmm. It seems like you're you're getting at that narrative, like yeah, what happened in the depression? Like what were those feelings? What how did those power dynamics play out on the ground? That sometimes That's get right. lost in just in just bland economic descriptions of inequality. Yeah, yeah, it was like a, like a studs turkle approach, like sort of the human condition in some ways. It's sort of like the loop. I love studs. You love studs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I saw them once. Yeah. Did you? Yeah. Where? At a Ralph Nader uh, presidential really <laughs> rally. He, uh, he supported him for the Green Party. Yeah. And I, I back attended. Back in two thousand. Back in two thousand. Yeah. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. I mean, I, one of the things I mentioned about anarchy is like, what do you think some of the misconceptions are when, when people hear that word? Sure, sure. Because that's something that people go, okay, you know, I mean, you know, chaos. Yeah, exactly. This is just chaos. Anarchy in the UK. Yeah, there's a, yeah. Uh, I would call that nihilism. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so people have this notion of, you know, it goes back to the, the assassinations of the late 1800s and early 1900s mm-hmm. of different uh, world leaders. But when you think about it, those were isolated actions of individuals that advocated the philosophy. Anarchism is also about collective cooperative action. Mm-hmm. And none of those assassination attempts were by collective groups that represented the movements that they were part of. Uh, the largest sense of, or in uh, anarchists have always been war on the, an anti-war, anti-violence, anti-coercive. Violence itself is a coercive uh, way to interact with people. That's actually re- reversing back to natural sciences, cause-effect, mm-hmm. rocks impinging mm-hmm. upon things, kind of ways to deal with people. But power relations are about how people interact socially and uh, accomplish things. It's a very different dynamic, and that's the, the aim. Mm-hmm. At the same time, if structures, power structures are, are not are refusing to change, it, it, you know, it does open up the possibility for a, a violence and conflict to yeah. try to rectify things. And so um, you do have that, and that became useful for me to, to look at uh, warfare. Right, that's right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that warfare itself, I was interested in looking at warfare because it's, uh, we can look at sites, we can look at uh, weapons used, we have stories and whatnot. This is a way to look at archaeology that 
is a part of the story or about power relations mm-hmm. by the definition of the fact that you're looking at a defensive side. So something, some kind of situation is they're defending themselves against something. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know that some kind of tensions existed in the past. Mm-hmm. What's going on? And so that gets us, you know, to, to take that as a topic gets us out of just their processing resources. They're, they're, getting, they're getting timbered to build a structure. <laughs> they're processing resources yeah, on top top of a cliff. On, yeah. <laughs> cliff resource. Cliff <laughs> and when you talk about the early origins, you were talking about earlier sort of uh, the assassinations of is anarchy had its, its origins in Barcelona? In Spain, do you know sort of the rise of sort of like the, the, the social thought? Uh, 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 as an actual philosophy? Yeah, because you, you were interested in the philosophy you were mentioning earlier. Sure. Yeah. Um, there's two different ways you can look at it. So one is a, an official political philosophy mm-hmm. uh, coming from, say, uh, Pierre-Joseph Proudhon in France, okay. uh, Godwin in England, Bakunin, a lot of the Russians, uh, Kropotkin and Bakunin, who happen to be aristocracy. It's kind of interesting. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but they rejected the, the lifestyle that they had arisen. Uh, and they, they traveled throughout, and it was a part of the broader worker movement, and, and Marx was friendly to all of this. And so there's a lot of interesting... He spent evenings drinking with... Mm-hmm. Some of these individuals, right? Yeah, uh, and then later, then challenged them. Um, but they were, and they joined together, and, and they were a part of just the left. There's two different lines of the left. But we could also say that anarchism extends much further back uh, as just a, a collective, cooperative, mutual aid way of interacting with people. And then so you have movements that are advocating this. Uh, you can um, back in some type of the Taoists of China mm-hmm. uh, are looked to, or uh, many, uh, uh, many, many different movements, and so you can just see it as a trend of authoritarian hierarchical relationships as opposed to egalitarian heterarchical cooperative relationships, and so then you yeah. can start to think of uh, well, bonobo versus <laughs> chimpanzee hierarchy, right? Uh, as two different domains that yeah. humans uh, have options of, of ways to interrelate. And then a lot of those basic. So I mean, it, that's a would be very small a anarchism in yeah. that sense. But is it simplistic to, to categorize it as, as hierarchical, or is that too? Is that does that not give it enough sort of like? Well, egalitarian and uh, and, and hierarchical. Hierarchical, yeah, would, yeah. Be, would be appropriate. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Did you ever? Uh, did you ever read anything about Bill Marquardt? Sure. From his work in Southwest. Well, he was writing some of the stuff in the mid '80s, I believe. He contacted me, yeah. Yeah. Did, yeah, yeah. yeah, he, yeah. I, I remember reading his papers in grad school and being like, who's this guy? Why is he, this is, no one's talking about this stuff. And I was just yeah, like, no, no, this no, different he, approach to sort of like organ social organization. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I met him at a, he, uh, one of the essays. After that, he, he sent me a copy of one of his articles. And, yeah. And, uh, yeah, very interesting. Okay. <laughs> Another little interesting thing. Okay. I just want to, this is a paper I'm hoping to put together, but a lot of people have already written about this. Okay. Which is that anarchism, uh, as political philosophy, when I mentioned Proudhon, uh, actually comes from uh, the use, I mean, we know it's an ancient Greek term for absence of rulers, or, or against domination, so you might prefer translation, but yeah. uh, it was actually a, a Baron de la Hontaine was traveling in Canada along the St. Lawrence and uh, visited some Iroquoian peoples, mm-hmm. and he wrote a travel account back in the late 1600s. Yeah. And, and it goes back to Europe, and it becomes this widely popular account of his travels amongst Iroquois, but he was very impressed by Iroquoian peoples. Here they are, living in relatively large villages, 
huge longhouses, you know, equivalent to or even larger than many plank houses here in the Northwest Coast, these longhouses. Uh, and uh, he's just stunned that here they are, they don't have a chief of these villages. They, uh, each house has a, actually the, the matriarch, it's the woman who's in yeah. charge, and the men are in charge of the public aspects. But the women are in charge of who the men are that represent them uh, politically. And so it was a very decentralized, heterarchical political formation. And, uh, and what he saw was that everybody's taken care of, mm -hmm. uh, all the children, elderly. Uh, and he also saw that uh, people carried themselves really well, very mm -hmm. sense of dignity, mm -hmm. and as if each of them were, I think, he, you know, as a king. Yeah. On, you know, and they're, they're in charge of themselves. And, uh, and he couldn't figure out a way to describe it, and so he says, this is, this is anarchy. <laughs> this gets uh, picked up. Uh, it's very popular. It's put into plays and stuff in France and, and whatnot, and uh, leads to and influences Proudhon, who then actually calls himself an anarchist. That's, so, yeah, yeah. that's so interesting. Yeah, <laughs> full circle. It's, just, I mean, it's, it's very anthropological. It's yeah. like this is how anthropologists have been exposing alternative power dynamics yeah. to Western audiences. True. For True. its entire like, do you, do you see your work contributing to like a, a critique of Western and European power dynamics, like in that same way, that you're able to to expose alternative ways of power organization? Well, I, yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm interested in that, but also, yeah, I would agree with you that anthropology itself really does that by default mm -hmm. by yeah. presenting multiple cultures with different. Uh, yeah, when you think about it, most most cultures in the broad scheme of things, are anarchic, right? They're, they're not. It's very unusual, the development into a state mm -hmm. in the large scheme of things. Only happens about 5,000 years ago. Uh, and in fact, uh, uh, yeah, an anthropologist I like, uh, Pierre Clostris, really focuses on this, right? And he, he points out that it's, you know, we tend to think of it and kind of off off-put the, the agency of things, right? Where we, we say it's the uh, the agricultural revolution, as if it was this technology that yeah. actually causes changes in humans. Or it's the urban revolution, just the way we organize themselves and uh, concentrate in cities is, is the real thing, or uh, uh, that leads to the change in human uh, relationships and whatnot. But for him, it was actually the political formation of the state that actually leads to you know, the organization of people into this unique power structure. Uh, not to say that it wasn't present before. Hierarchy obviously is present. Uh, concentrations of it are represented going back to the Upper Paleolithic, you could say. But it's always a part of a, a hierarchy of rotating and situational hierarchies, and they never become solidified. And then mm -hmm. something happens with the state, and they solidify, and people are no longer able to exercise a critique of power rather than a position. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then we get these it's Egypt, Babylon, <laughs> yeah. Assyria, yeah. yeah, and so on. Huh. Sorry, I was going to make a Donald Trump joke, then I realized it wasn't really appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> sure, no, <go> for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just thinking about like the most oppressive people. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but no, that's that's super fascinating. Uh, one one question I have uh, is, I. In, in my day-to-day -day life, I get really frustrated with, like, the kind of, uh, I don't know, I often feel like, like the archaeological uh, research that I produce as a consultant is kind of uh, impotent in a lot of aspects in terms of, like, exploring 
like I don't have a lot of agency to explore uh, larger questions of like what's going on socially in the archaeological record with the data I'm looking at. It's just uh, in time constraints. It, it, it's time constraints. It's money constraints, and it's you know, it's a lot of people just saying we're not interested in paying for this. That's uh, right. Yeah, and and it's hard to to say, but like that's why we like we're doing it for this reason, and they say we don't want to pay for that reason. Just give us the raw data. We want to pay for the raw data. Uh, yeah, and I'm just I'm always like curious about wh- how how people who kind of uh, who, are really really into this uh, incorporated into like a like a more commercial world like how like like a how to guide to be a little bit more subversive or a little bit more uh, I don't I don't know what the word I'm looking for is uh, oh subversive is the word I I, I would just think that uh, that that doing archaeology that that needs to be done I think in the long run it has to be done that way and if it's not done that way it will continually lead to public disinterest in archaeology and mm-hmm. the cost of it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and if we don't continue to make archaeology relevant, if we keep writing reports that are only read by branch officials, mm-hmm. or uh, that nobody, yeah. and nobody's doing news news stories and press releases about their, their archaeology. Even in academia? like What? Even in academia? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Get, I mean, reports that don't get read. And, yeah. And this, this just came up. Um, it was... Uh, a, n- a new, I think, U.S. Republican uh, expose on uh, NSF funding and the failure of NSF to provide for its original aims. And one of the uh, examples was a archaeological paper as a as a waste of taxpayer money. And it was just an article that didn't... In East Africa, right? Just yeah, it was. It was, yeah. A, it was like Tanzanian Zora, yeah. which is super interesting to all of us. But it, it didn't connect with him. He thought it was useless, and I think it's not connecting. With a lot of the American public, and uh, it's just a, it's a challenge we have how to how to make what we do relevant. Uh, and it, archaeology is relevant, but it's going to lose standing if if we're not engaging with the public. Yeah. And that's on us. And I want to throw it to you, Bill. Do you have ideas about how to to sort of engage that public and also find ways to make what kind of Cody's leading to making your work meaningful and relevant to communities that you, you work in? Well, I think they're yeah uh, yeah I, I, they're. I think uh, it's got to be built into the structure to encourage it. Mm. Uh, so that means coming from like our branch. Yeah, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> such that it allows companies yeah. to say, we, this, this, uh, our branch has determined perhaps that this is a, or the, maybe it's the First Nation. Yeah. First Nation has determined that this site is significant uh, beyond your normal, typical. Yeah, lithic ten percent, and uh, and hence now we've got a component where you'll do a press release or you maybe have a public day where people can come in. Mm-hmm. That, and, yeah, that's, and, that's super interesting. I've never yeah. even had the idea of doing a press release for anything like like we've made like some pretty reasonable, like some pretty interesting discoveries over the course of like my consulting career, and all of it was very strictly like you, you don't own that information, you don't talk about it. The, the proponent owns that information, mm-hmm. and yeah. now some of those some of those strictures come from the proponent, but some of yeah. them come from nations. Uh, yeah, from, yeah. Uh, the sensitivity to uh, cultural concerns coming well, from the that's nations. fine. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Things. Are, um, it's the proponent yeah. having that control, or thinking they own the data you're out there when you're not even thinking about whose heritage it is. Yeah, yeah. and that proponent yeah. is sometimes just wary, like they're iffy about how it might play. Yeah, yeah. well, and, and and rightfully so. And, and once they're yeah. unsure, they're not going to take the risk. Yeah, and and hence it doesn't go out, even though it could be in their benefit. 
Yeah. But okay. they're just saying, uh, well, somebody could raise that you're destroying this site. Right? Mm-hmm. And that's the thing. We've got to... Got to get that into the permitting process. You've got to do quality archaeology so it's, these things aren't being destroyed. Yeah. 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 I mean, that, that uh, archaeology, of course, is destructive, but if the, the archaeology is of sufficient quality to, to, to get these... Um, and do sufficient analyses of these sites that uh, produces meaningful results for the local community. There shouldn't be awareness about yeah, that's right. exposing that push- research. If they're pushing that, maybe they have research questions and interests of their own that, yeah. that, that could be put forward. I mean, they could be co-analyzed, co-interpreted, they could be yeah. co-produced and co-owned in that way, right? And, and then eventually, obviously, the community would hold all that. I mean, I always think of us as facilitators in some ways. I, mm-hmm. I, I don't even really. I just want to find the questions that communities find interesting. Mm-hmm. I'd rather find ways to uh, collaborate you know, on that level. Uh, Actually, not even be collaborative. They would I've, own it, you know. Yeah, I mean, I found that local communities are just generally interested. Yeah, in even pretty stuff that we find all the time. Yeah, and not <laughs> yeah. That excited yeah. about yeah. it. Yeah, they are excited about it. Yeah. And the fact that, you know, so you think of it in terms of scale, mm-hmm. the immediate community, the small local newspaper, or just even public awareness of the neighborhood and mm-hmm. that they know what's in their neighborhood, uh, that they've got some rich history there, which they probably don't even think about. They're just occupying new settlers, expanding. Mm-hmm. There's nothing really here. Now we can add some dimension to what life was like back there and that there's much more going on. It gives them this is the kind of stuff they talk about all the time, right? Mm-hmm. What happened here. Uh, and if, if you can contribute to that, that's much better. Some structures, uh, and usually it's on the government level, and that's why I pointed to the art branch. Yeah, yeah. Iowa, the state of Iowa, uh, grants four weeks a year to their archaeologists on staff to publish articles. Hmm. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, because another dynamic is time. Like mm-hmm. you were talking about, you've yeah. got to move on to the next report, or you, you don't have time to investigate, or you're not even allowed at the hours to do it. But here... Here they were saying, you know, uh, take the richest thing that you've been working on all year. Yeah. And it's important for the public to know what what you did. And let's get this out. Yeah. Um, not to like, I, I, I work for a really great company and they, they do allow, like they, they encourage me to, uh, to, you know, work in archaeology outside of just specifically their consulting firm, like to publish independently and to go to conferences. And there's always conference funding available from, from Clienza. But uh, but yeah, I get like I get like ten hours on average to write a report. Like, <laughs> yeah, like after data gathering, I get like ten hours to then. to yeah. to complete the entire analysis of all of the data I've collected, and and write the report. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, ten to twelve, depending on the size of the project. Yeah, but yeah. I used to work for. I was in an unusual situation in Missouri where uh, there was the government or the state yeah. uh, that handled it, and so we didn't have these issues. They're like. I've got a bunch of ceramics. Uh, mm-hmm. I want to take the time to research this unique tempering that I found, put it in context, and put out the report. And if it took a long time, it took a long time. And, and there was no, no, it was just what we did. Yeah. And then I was thrown into the CRM world right after that. And they, I came across, and I had these ceramics. And, yeah. and basically, they, they showed me the hours they had. And it's like, <laughs> all you can do is just tabulate and be descriptive about it. And he yeah. says, yep, that's what we do. It's a rimmer body yeah. shirt and move on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's like we're not here to, to interpret. We're here to just document. And uh, yeah, not not here to interpret, just to document with, but just yeah. disregarding the level of interpretation that comes with basic documentation yeah. of the results. You're 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 just applying a very formulaic interpretation onto it. You're not yeah. not interpreting. And think about how much social 
processes go into making a pot. Where you get the clay, where you get the It's dad. so maybe fascinating. Like a PhD thesis. Is oh, yeah. Maybe, maybe, yeah. maybe somebody does that. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> but to think of all that, and then sort of what's displayed or how it's used, or you know, there's so much around it. And, you, and if you just class it, if you just it gets pushed off as a, like a grad student, a fictional grad student. Yeah, sometimes CRM always does that. Yeah, some grad students going to do this. Yeah, some of them do. But. Some do. <laughs> I have a question though about the art branch. How about some beer first? Oh, yeah. yeah. Is there Fill it up. Mm, beer. What were we talking about? You're talking about the art branch, aren't you? Yeah, Bill. Oh, well. well no, I don't, no, I don't want to go into the art. I'm just, just curious if Bill has any sort of a... Stip our toes. <laughs> yeah, stip our toes a little bit. <laughs> any, what would be his ideas as far how... Did you smumble that? How do you, would you... What would you put forward to the art branch to sort of channel them to sort of be proactive to quarter, cause change where so Cody doesn't have 10 hours to write a report? Where do you see the changes or where would you put the focus on at the provincial level there? Did yeah, you, yeah. Is that, okay. is that clear? Yeah. No. Okay. Oh, I've got yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I think there should be an allotments, and it should be uh, they should have more leeway at the art branch to recognize uh, the value of what's being excavated, as mm-hmm. opposed to just treating everything the same, no matter what it is, whether it's a prolific scatter mm-hmm. or Glen Rose. Yeah. Um, I'm tired of of you know, the way that we see money distributed. So much money is put into archaeology. And uh, and so much money, like hundreds of thousands of dollars, you can see this report, and it's entirely a negative survey with just thousands of shovel tests, right? Yes. And it, that's that bugs me. It, yeah. it does bug me. Yeah. Because of the, does it need to be that intensive? Um, when it's you've got, I mean, st- statistics. Well, sampling. Yeah. Provides a good knowledge of how things are going. Why do we have to? Uh, um, and at the same time, you hear about excavations, whether it's at a South Fraser's Grinder Road or mm-hmm. Glen Rose or St. Mungo, and, and the amount of money, it's just not as intensive an excavation as it should be. And there, that's what I think the Arc Branch needs to emphasize, is some kind of, provide a, a framework of interpreting sites, of what we know mm-hmm. about the past and what we don't know. Uh, Missouri did something like this. Mm-hmm. They actually put together, period by period, What's our knowledge of, say, Paleo-Indian period in Missouri? Very little. We've got these sites here. If we get a site that dates to the Paleo-Indian period, that gets allotted more intensive excavation. Hmm. If you come across a site that fits that period, and they've got a, a, mm-hmm. it's set, it's structured, we're going to investigate that a lot more. And then they do that for each of the periods. So like a late archaic, we know that there are sites all around here, but we don't know a lot about their villages. If somebody comes across a late archaic, more intensive camp, that's going to get a more intensive excavation than something else. Um, and they have a, a, a way, a rubric of, in, of helping to interpret, rather than just doing this mm-hmm. blanket, same thing. If it's a lithic scatter, uh, a single, you know, small structure, uh, you can put a lot of money to a lot of stuff that doesn't matter a hell of a lot. Mm-hmm. And then you're not putting as much money to sites that really deserve it. And then those are the points where you can then go to the yeah. public, yeah. look at all this cool stuff that we found out about this site. But you have to have qualified people to do it. I'm privy to that with PR stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and you need what I, that was my first foray into to sort of CRM archaeology and, and, and sort of finishing up my degree and then sort of working on that and seeing how things were done in BC. And I was just jaw dropped and just disappointed in sort of the quality 
of archaeology and you look at that report and you look how much money was spent and then sort of like the, all the politics that happened afterward became a proponent and consulting firm nobody wanted to pay for anything and then you're left with kind of like what you have mm-hmm. who and, read that re- yeah I don't know who it? read it here's an idea if you can try to tell the story and that was one of the goals people were trying to work towards that it just never made it there but part of that is when you're doing the archaeology in the field um, um, of um who's really qualified to deal with this kind of archaeological record and treat it with respect it deserves and produce something that's, that's socially informative about Kosei-ish life. And, and also, like, to which degree uh, are the nations going to be involved in making the choices about which sites they want investigated, which ones are important to them, and... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, one of the things... I think I, it's important for them to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah I mean, I, I, I thought one of the great things that I was trying to pitch, what I thought would be great to... Have sections co-written with, with the community members. There's seven nations involved in that project. No one's really involved in the analyses. No one's involved in the interpretation. You know, it's left over to sort of a consulting firm and the proponent to deal with it and control however they want. And that's the, those are things that always frustrated me, mm-hmm. seeing it in that sort of what I call big C consulting. Mm-hmm. And you have experience in consulting as well. Don't sure. You? You've been able to sort of have a little bit more play on some projects, haven't you? Sort of like make some ends meet and provide ways to sort of have the work be meaningful and relevant. Yeah, I gave a paper on that up in uh, the Canadian, uh, called it uh, Occupying the Space <laughs> Between Minimal Regulatory Requirements yeah. and What You're Able to Do Within Your Budget. Mm-hmm. And uh, and you can often push, I was trying to say, if you mm-hmm. have people, you have allies. Mm-hmm. The First Nation that you're working with, they're interested in further excavation about this site. Let's, let's do more. And I've, I've yeah. Well, in that volume that we both mm-hmm. published in, yeah. I gave an example of, uh, yeah. of a case where the First Nation pushed for mm-hmm. more work with the developer. They were part owners, and so that <laughs> really helped. helped. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <clears throat> but we did, uh, I would say, above and beyond archaeology because of, because mm-hmm. of that. Uh, but yeah, capitalist pressures are going to push push it down to the minimal arc yeah. branch requirements. And... Uh, and First Nations or archaeologists are going to push for maximal quality, and you got that space in between. How do you occupy oh. that space and do work that supersedes what's just minimal and descriptive mm-hmm. and produces more? Is it a lack of us not being, you guys have brought, brought it up earlier, of making our work more public and, and having sort of anthropologists in the paper, archaeologists talking about us, and having more of a presence in, in the local level in the city here where we live and work? And, um, is, is that something that is a small is that one avenue to sort of cause change there's probably multiple obviously yeah no I uh, I, I do a lot of talks clans is really cool not to like make this a, a fan cast but uh, they, they're really cool in that they, they give me time off to go talk to elementary schools like in the lower mainland and I can just go in I've got a presentation set up I do a couple of experiments I show them like the sciencey side do you, do you go in with your gear um, I go in with, with like a little bit of gear. I go in. I, I do that. I've gone into first grade classes with my yeah. vest yeah. and all the gear on it. And I could spend the time just like, yeah, this is a GPS. This is a compass. Here, take this out. So what's this for? I've got a ruler. Why do I need this? And it's a blast. That's way more interesting. Sh- I show up with a bag full of broken shells and a sweet potato. And they're like, what's this going to be? And I'm, and I, and I'm like, yeah, I'm going to show you one, like, one avenue of scientific analysis. And the kids are like, we're, we're Four, like we're four years old, we don't really get this. <laughs> um, but no, uh, but yeah, whenever I go in, 
I, I always find that I'm, I'm surprised at how many of the kids have never heard that archaeology exists, that this is a thing, that you can like find out about the past by you know, digging around a bit. Uh, and so, so yeah, it's, uh, I think that there's like, at some stage, that's just not present in like the culture, like the, the pop culture of young people is to like think about the past. There, I think I think parents actually I'm I'm the least qualified person to talk about this, but I'm I'm I think maybe parents are more concerned with how their kids are going to do in the future than with how their kids think about the past. Yeah, I, mean, I guess it ties to what Bill's talking about. Yeah. Sort of the, the social setting where people are who's having kids at what age and sort of what the pressures people are dealing with day to day. Um, I still think it's a good avenue to talk to children, but I'm I feel like the the, the, the audience we need to be talking to are the ones who are sort of in those decision-making roles that really can't even come around to even see the value of archaeology mm-hmm. or, or find out why it matters that a first, that, that you that you could even be a guest in a First Nations sort of traditional yeah. territory, mm-hmm. and that, that you don't own that land or that you don't own those resources that are buried in there, this idea that, you know, I'm allowed to come in and, and, and extract this. The just, stakes are high in yeah. devaluing uh, NSF in, in BC <laughs> development politics, like... Yes, it's if we it, can't if we can't engage people on archaeology, you know, we stand to lose a lot. There's a bit of intellectualism that's lost. I, I don't know. It just seems like when they're attacking the NSF or they're attacking science, it's like where do you how do you is that because it's too uh, ivory tower? What are, what are we doing wrong that we're not really connecting with a community to sort of make a difference? Well, that's why it gets back to my social archaeological. Yeah, point. I think I think so. Yeah. Yeah, that you don't want to just do this final analysis that's just <laughs> just. You know, where that's what it becomes. It's more about the animals than the people that made uh, the process of animals. And yeah. it's so exciting of a field. Why do why do we make it so boring? Like, how, yeah. do, how do we make archaeology really? It'll go good. Well, it's, it's why I like asking that origin story question in the beginning. Yeah. Because yeah. we have these seminal figures that brought us into archaeology, and it's always like there's storytelling and there's mm-hmm. a narrative there, and it's like what gets you in, and it's not just the tables of like NISP. It's it's, it's <laughs> yeah it's, minimum it's, number yeah, yeah. thank it you Sean I was so much yeah, 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 yeah. I did it <laughs> I was hooked <laughs> yeah yeah there's something rich there and there's something uh, slightly magical that I think needs to be part of every single thing that we write mm-hmm. and I don't know sometimes our flowery language can be edited out and uh, flowery like, language yeah I like to add. Nice. Uh, oh, jargony language. So poetic. Oh, exactly. <laughs> poetic language. Okay. And then it gets it gets sliced and diced, but sometimes <laughs> it comes back. You get it in oh, there. Ian was a creative. He's a creative writer. Okay. <laughs> like a struggling poet, so he tries to varies his struggling. Fuses archaeological writings, ramblings. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, maybe not uh, poetic language is needed for these stories, but uh, yeah, certainly trying to create narrative. I, yeah. I like creating stories. Totally. Uh, that is, there's something about human uh, need for placing ourselves in a, a meaningful cosmos that requires storytelling, and uh, and if, uh, we'll talk a little bit more about um, that. But uh, yeah, if we're just writing these stories about resource gathering people, uh, and or or doing an interesting report about uh, a village, and yet it's not read by nobody but a few individuals. Or presented at an archaeological conference and not to the public. Mm-hmm. We do a lot of presenting to ourselves. That's very true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. Uh, but we don't uh, communicate like that to the public very often. And uh, it's as if 
Yeah, all of these reports, this is something Knut Berger, Berger from uh, Seattle, columnist, has written about. Um, it's as if all of these reports are going like the last scene in the Raiders of Lost, uh, the Lost Ark, where they take the the Ark itself <laughs> and just haul it into a warehouse, a government warehouse, to be put into a box and never seen again. Uh, and we don't want that sound image of all of our archaeological work um, being into this destiny, which is Parl. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> it, it does happen. It's just blue rubber toques. <laughs> or blue rubber toques yeah, at the museum, yeah. right? Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, you've, it's got to be something more meaningful. Because the, the other consequence is that is how does archaeology reach the news generally if we're not doing that? And it's because mm-hmm. a catastrophe has occurred in the encountering of burials and the development or the cost of... Yeah, well, they're usually related to burials. Because yeah. if it's not burials, that project continues. Yeah, And yeah. that house is gone and, uh, yeah. and whatnot. And... Uh, and if those stories keep rising uh, about the cost and about uh, how this is delaying development and it's, it's only about these catastrophes, if that's the association that the public has with archaeology as being like, what, you know, what the hell? This cost $200,000, mm-hmm. this excavation, so we can learn about a bunch of bones. Like, what's this about? You know, a bunch of shells and bones. They call it just a resource gathering site. <laughs> who cares? Yeah. They're not interested. Yeah. The person who wrote it probably wasn't even interested. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so what, what are we spending $200,000 of, you know, money on this? Yeah. And if that's the dominant narrative, that we're, and increasingly that's what it is, if we don't change that and present positive things, like, look what the hell is found. Look what yeah. we learned about the past. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Other, we're we're going to be increasingly, as our costs and CRM go up, our relevance going down. Yeah. That's not a good dynamic no, in the long yeah, run no, at all. Yeah. You know. No. Uh, yeah, that's a fantastic no. point. Yeah. Just the the prevalence of negative archaeological stories in BC media and across Canada and across North America, and it's what people. That's how people engage with the discipline. And it politicizes the communities, and, 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 and I don't know. Sometimes dehumanizes them in a way when that, that's the alert red flag over and over. And you hear that on sites, or you hear people make remarks like Which that. The hesitancy to make be public about yeah. the finds that they have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, if you if you for me, if I think about like the number one thing in terms of archaeology that I've heard about lately, it's it's not even uh, a specific like thing about a site. It's just that, like, it's Standing Rock, and it's about uh, what's going on there and how that was, a, like, that's a sacred area. Uh, but, like, that's what people think when they think of archaeology right now. It's like, oh, it's it's that. It's emergency. And yeah. It's, it's like it's, catastrophe. Yeah. yeah. But it's also that image of the, excuse me, the crassness, the angry Indian, though, too, the way it's being portrayed on in the media is mm-hmm. like people don't understand why people may be upset or why they're protecting the water, why they're protecting these places. Because it hasn't, been, because it hasn't been done. It hasn't been yeah. dealt with. And, 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 and so you get these ideas of them attacking the state or the, the, the state police, whoever's out there right now. And, and it's just, I think it's vice versa. But yeah, it is vice versa. <laughs> but, but, but it gets mis, it gets misplayed in, in, in public, and that's what people are digesting. Yeah. And it, well, yeah, it's, if it's the first time you hear about it, they're like, yeah, why is this coming up now? It's, yeah. Well, it's because we I, haven't properly publicized the positive aspects of our work. Yeah, um, this kind of goes back to our discussion with Jay, but, you know, if, if the consulting world, and, and this discussion, but if the, if the consultant's in charge, uh, 
I'm, I'm making a bit of a leap here because I'm not 100% sure that the... I, I actually don't think that the consulting process is exactly the same in America as it is here. But no. if the... Uh, yeah. If the, if the consultants that had like worked that line or if the, that line had, had archaeological consultants on it and they you know, published their results about that area and like brought it to the attention of people before it was already construction time, you would have people maybe understanding that this is an important area before... Mm which maybe could have prevented the whole thing. I think the tribal archaeologist, though, didn't he say something to the consulting, the consultants that were doing the work? Or am I wrong in that? I, can't, I don't know the timeline exactly. Okay. I think you're right. Yeah, and I think they ignored the data, or they ignored the information, I think. And they proceeded anyways, from what I understand. Is that... Yeah, well, the reports of the, of the archaeologist who did the survey of the pipeline cleared the area. Yeah, he put, yeah, uh, yeah, not taking in the information. Yeah, from the and, then, yeah. and they yeah. didn't think that their information was fully accounted for. Yeah. And I think some of it was probably regarding immaterial aspects of the landscape. Mm. Intangible stuff. Intangible yeah. yeah. Culture, yeah. Which very well we should have somebody yeah. on to talk about that as well. That's that's a whole hour of discussion there as well. Oh, yeah. That'd be great. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. All right, well, uh, well this has been uh, an amazing chat. Uh, truly enlightening. Uh, and... Uh, I want to say uh, thanks, Bill, for, for coming over to this tiny, hot, loud apartment where we try to record a podcast as best we can every week. Yeah. Uh, um, and, uh, yeah, so thank you so much for, for coming out uh, and for, for the transect. I've been Cody. Yeah. And I've been Sean. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right. You're so welcome. Uh, yeah, and we'll, uh, we'll catch you next week. Wish you well with the podcast. Thanks, Bill. Thank, thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah put it out there in the world. Hopefully... Hopefully you listeners are enjoying it too. All right, we'll see you next week.